Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Yeah, so so many so many potential approaches and questions and personal issues. It's hard to know where to start. How are we going to do it in one seminar? So the idea of the seminar is to create a space for three things, which you guys have already mentioned. The first one is what does the Bible say? The second one is what does our culture say? And the third one is how do we personally and corporately respond to that? And kind of different points have been made. How do I navigate this? How can we do better as a church? How do I explain myself to my non-Christian friends, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, The LGBT is such a hypersensitive topic, I think someone said. John Stott, who's a hero of mine, long dead, said this, called it double listening. Double listening is the faculty of listening to two voices at the same time. The voice of God through scripture and the voice of men and women around us. These voices will often contradict each other, but our purpose in listening to them both is to discover how they relate to each other. Double listening is indispensable to Christian discipleship and Christian mission. I'm not suggesting that we should listen to God and our fellow human beings in the same way or with the same degree of deference. We listen to the word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, and resolve to believe and obey what we come to understand. We listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, and resolve not necessarily to believe and obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. So we're trying to do that double listening today. I'm going to list 10 what I think are uncontestable statements for Christians and then five very challenging tensions that I think exist for us as Christians. Uh, This is a start to the conversation. It will be high level and your questions can then die. I want to know more about that point and we can think about it. So it's kind of deliberately high level. And I've got a list of resources and a lot of the books that I've read over the last five or ten years and more to suggest and talks as well. There we go. Genesis to Revelation, a bride and a groom story. So, ten uncontestable statements, I think, and then you can just disagree. Or th- This is the number one issue of our day, and therefore we need to consider our response as Christians. It was said of the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 23, the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. said, so, the times have changed, we need to understand our times and know what we should do. Um, the, right, the sexual revolution of the 1960s uh, is culminating right now in, in many strange ways. Um, a book by Carl Truman that, uh, that I recommend called The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self um, is a great little book that, well, it's not that little actually, goes through the last 250 years of thought. And uh, it, it helps us think through that what's happening now, uh, well, what's happening now is not actually very new. So we think, wow, our culture's changed. And Truman actually says, no, we are now getting to the end of 250 years of thought. He says, Rousseau, in the 18th century, and he takes you through this, psychologized ourselves. So our true self is inside us. That was 250 years old. That's not a new thought. It was just in academic circles 250 years ago. Now it's popular level. He then said, Freud came along and said, we sexualized our psychology. So firstly, my true self is inside me. Secondly, my true, my true self is sexual. So that's 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And then two Marxist thinkers, Reich and Marcuse and the New Left, politicized our sexuality and said, you know, this is the, should be the front and center of political life. 
So he sort of says, whilst we go, wow, things have changed so quickly. He's like, no, it's just the logical thoughts going. It's a, it's a really interesting book. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a smaller layman's version there, if you'd like it. So all that is to say um, that whilst it feels very destabilizing now and everything is happening so quickly, it's actually just the culmination of, um, uh, of a, lot of, a lot of thinking. If part two deals with the psychologizing of self, part three, this is his book, deals with sexualizing of psychology and politicizing of sex. The central figure here is Sigmund Freud. It is Freud more than any other figure who made plausible the idea that humans from infancy onwards are, are at core sexual beings. It is our sexual desires that are ultimately decisive for who we are. And this belief sh- shaped Freud's own civil, uh, civilization. Society, culture is a result of a trade-off between the anarchic sexual drive of human beings and the necessity for them to live together in communities. When Freud's thought is then appropriated by certain Marxist thinkers, most notably Reich and Marcuse, the result is a heady mix of sex and politics. The new left that emerged from this synthesis sees oppression as fundamentally a psychological category and sexual codes as primary instruments and there's just it's such a helpful book to orientate yourself he's not necessarily criticizing he's more trying to get yourself orientated as to uh as to how things really really are um uh, i won't read any more for time so the culture is thinking like this and it's gotten out to popular level and it assumes the church has the worst answers and often the church has had the worst answers uh kate forbes can she is she now disqualified for being a from public office because she holds Christian views. I mean, it's right there if you if you followed the Scottish news or any news. Um, so this is the number one issue. So we've got to think how to respond. This is sensitive and challenging for us all. Every one of us doesn't find this easy. There's personal challenges that you may be facing. There are social challenges that we're all facing. You can be a very liberal-minded person historically or conservative person historically. You might naturally go, I want to affirm and accept everything that's thrown at me. Or someone that goes, I want to naturally reject it. The biblical response is more nuanced. You cannot make this, this just a political issue and find your camp. Jesus was never boxed in a political camp. Truth and falsehood is in both camps, left and right. The kingdom of God can never be just politically defined. Personally, I have close friends and family that would be very divergent to where I am. And uh, we need to navigate this. Third undisputable statement in my mind is the gospel puts us all on an equal footing we are equally guilty and condemned in sin and we are equally loved and exalted in christ so no one has superior superiority in this discussion no one is more loved by god no one is without brokenness distortion guilt and shame in this area no one is beyond god's redemption like the woman at the well in john 4 no one is beyond a better story being told fourthly To disagree does not mean to hate, or to disagree does not mean to condemn, or to disagree does not mean to demonize. Similarly, to be tolerant doesn't mean to to affirm and agree. And we need to reject what our culture tells us these words mean. Uh, At a popular level, that's how people think. At a philosophical level, everyone knows that's jargon. Of course, you can disagree with someone without judging them. But because we've we've, uh, psychologized our identity and then sexualized our psychology if i disagree with you on your sexual practice i'm actually i'm seen to be judging you and i'm like no no i'm not i'm just disagreeing um so christians mustn't judge a person's worth but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be discerning of a person's actions and attitudes we're not to condemn people 
but nor are we to forgo all critical thinking. The Bible uh, clearly says that all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong, morally wrong. And the gender, our gender identity is defined by our physical sex, not by the inner feelings. That's from Genesis to Revelation. We are creations, not creators. And our culture now says, no, we can create ourselves. No, the Bible says you're a created person. And the whole story is a groom coming from, for a bridegroom. And there's prohibitions in the Old Testament. There's prohibitions in the New Testament. And Jesus' teaching, which Naaman just read there from Matthew chapter 19, uh, uh, summarizes it. It's either marriage between a man and a woman or celibacy. They are the two options that Jesus offers. There's no other option on the table for Jesus. It's marriage. Sex happens with, in a context of a, of a marriage between a husband and a wife or it's celibacy. And he gives some examples there in that Matthew 19. For all who say Jesus is Lord, who rules through his word, the Bible, we are to align our thinking and our desires with what he says, not with what our culture says. And on the gender is determined by biological sex. That again comes from the fact that we are created, not creators. There are some very sensitive, confusing cases in a fallen world where that isn't clear and they need wisdom and sensitivity. And we could look at the statistics of how rare they are and they shouldn't be defining public policy. Um, so we must establish the commitment to the authority of Scripture. Six. Yes. Sorry, what would those complexities... Well, you're not sure. There's cases where you're not sure if you're a man or woman according to your set, biological sex. Yeah, it's just not clear. Yeah. Hold the questions unless it's clarifying. Yeah, we're going to have a whole time for questions. So I'm giving you ten things that I think are uncon- uh, uncontestable, but you can test away, and five tensions. Then it's open discussion. Uh, we live with beauty and brokenness uh, when it comes to sexuality and gender all the time. Every day. This is just in front of us. The beauty of it and the brokenness. So whether there's a gift of mutual pleasure or the, the fall and the, and the sin of sexual dysfunction and, and the brokenness of that pain, selfishness, sexual abuse, prostitution, porn. Whether it's the, the gift of, and, and, the, and the beauty and flourishing of reproduction and life or infertility and, and, and the death of the mother and or baby. Whether it's the joy and the gift of marital union or the, or the, or, or the distortion of divorce and infidelity and adultery. Whether it's the gift that of singleness and, and sex isn't necessary to human flourishing and, and freedom. Uh, or the world, the flesh and the devil tell us that is necessary. Your identity is shaped by your, your sexuality. Celibacy is considered less and unfulfilling. So we all know that the film A 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comic. You know, it's, it's comedy. Because we live in our culture that says we can't be a 40-year-old virgin. That's how our culture now views this. It's, you know, that's how shaped it is. No one, you know, a hundred years ago, that kind of film couldn't exist. You know, um, a category for God to communicate to us about Him and our union with Him. That's the gift of, of how section and gender should be: the bride and the groom, and the intimacy and the pleasure we can have with Him. But the distortion of the picture God gave us. So we live with this every day, all day. Uh, the gift and the distortion. We must establish the positive, beautiful. Biblical ethic on gender and sexuality. We must tell a better story. This must include a bigger and deeper vision of fulfillment, not just in marriage and sex, but also in singleness, in family and in the church and in friendship. Singleness and celibacy must be seen as positive and viable options, such that Jesus, the most fulfilled man that ever lived, could inhabit that and not have a lesser life. And Paul himself. 
the idols of sex and romance and family must be challenged, not just in the culture, but in church. And there must be a vital role for the church family. This, this is the eternal family. All other families will not be eternal, but the church one will. So we must remember the sufficiency of Jesus and his people. We must learn to counter uh, we must learn counter catechesis and subversive fulfillment. I'm going to teach you those two words. Inside the church, in discipleship, we must learn to counter catechize in daily life, children and teenagers in the home and in the church for the 20s and 30s, particularly in a digital age. In Matthew chapter 5, we hear the phrase, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus takes what the creed is from this day and says, now I'm going to tell you a better way. We must learn to counter teach, counter catechize. You have heard it said, but I say to you, he did this not only to teach the truth, but also to do it in contrast to the authorities of his day. Our instruction needs to follow the same pattern. We need catechisms as well as counter catechisms. There's a way of teaching, a way of instruction, catechism. Using biblical doctrine to both deconstruct the beliefs of our culture and answer the questions of the human heart that cultural narratives cannot. So we must not only construct a worldview, but we must dismantle and vaccinate against the dominant alternatives. Secular narratives are beliefs about reality that most cultural institutions inculcate as inarguable obvious truths they come to us now dozens of times a day or even an hour in ads tweets music stories opinion pieces they are narratives about uh, did i put them on here are, are your identity you are you have to be true to yourself that's a that's a that's a cultural belief you should live you should be free to live as you choose as long as you don't hurt anyone that's the one about freedom happiness you must do what makes you happiest. You can't sacrifice that for anyone. The only way to solve our problems through objective science and facts. That science has become the only arbiter of what's right. Morality, everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Justice, you are obligated to work for the freedom, rights and good of everyone in the world. And history, history is bending towards social progress and away from religion. While each of these cultural messages is partly true, and indeed despite of dis distortions, even secular non-Christian historians will show you, rooted in Christian teaching, all those ideas, they are all theologically mistaken and pragmatically harmful to human life. Many biblical teachings and truths undermine, weaken, or, 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 or balance. No, many biblical teachings and truths are undermined and weakened, and they need balancing out through a proper biblical understanding of those issues. So, for example, against the cultural codes that you've been taught there, my truth is, no, it's all truth is God's truth. He is the truth, not my truth. Do what makes you happy. No, you don't belong to yourself. You're a creature accountable to God through creation and redemption. Follow your heart. No, the Bible says the heart's deceitful. It's not a moral compass. You cannot help who you love. We're not free to act on every impulse. Our bodies now belong to God. What I feel on the inside is more accurate than my body. No, your body has a telos. Your body has a purpose that God gave it. So we must learn to counter, must learn counter catechesis. We must also learn subversive fulfillment. I got these slides the wrong way around. So uh, in Deuteronomy, it says their rock is not like our rock. They have a rock out there, all the nations, but it's not like our rock. It's not as good. It will crumble eventually. And that's, that's this subversive. What they want to build their life on will ultimately crumble. And we have the one that they should be building their lives on. Or we have broken systems. Like they keep drinking from a place that's not going to satisfy it. And they need the living water. 
So subversively, we're going to talk about it. So they are looking for something they can't find, but we have the answer. And Paul does this in Acts 17 and when engaging with the Athenians and 1 Corinthians 1. He takes their current understanding of how the world works, their current beliefs, their current desires, and says, let me show you how your thinking is incoherent. And let me show you how what you really desire can be found in Jesus around power and glory in the case of 1 Corinthians. So we must learn to subvert, to go, what you want cannot be fulfilled on your own terms right now. But what you want can be fulfilled somewhere else. And that is a real skill that the church knows actually nothing about. We expose, we expose the faulty thinking on their terms. This is why Tim Keller is so loved by everyone, because he does it. He takes the culture and exposes it on their terms. The emptiness of pursuing the desires on their terms and shows them what can only be found. We fulfill it then in Jesus. Nine. Jesus is the centre and the answer. Now, this is the thing I find hardest. I shouted to my dad about this. Our culture says this is the centre. You fulfilling your sexual you know, desires right now. And that's the answer. So our culture says this is defining and, and central. For us, Jesus is defining and central. Without a clear understanding of him and our hearts drawn to him, we will always be drinking from broken system. The woman at the well, John chapter 4. So we must somehow, this is the challenge, speak about this issue as much as the Bible does and not more. It's not central to Christians, this issue. But because it's central to our culture, we have to engage with it pretty regularly. That's a hard thing to do. Keep him central, not this central, but our culture's pushed it at the centre. But he's the centre. We must also speak about other Western liberal sins as much. Greed, division, hate, materialism, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, gossip. These should be spoken about as much in the church as anything else. We must teach people the character of God so we can learn to trust his commands. When you know his character, you realise his commands are not burdensome. And my tenth, so we must speak with biblical balance. We must speak about other Western sins. We must teach the character of God. And my tenth thing is that we are called to take up our cross. So suffering and self-denial are essential to following Jesus. Mark 8, most famously. The call and the cost of discipleship is to take up our cross. It's not self-interest. It's not self-fulfillment. It's self-denial. It's self-giving. We do not affirm all our desires. We deny many of our desires when you become a Christian. So, they are ten, I think, uncontested statements. It's the number one issue of our day. It's sensitive and challenging for us all. The gospel puts us all on an equal footing. To disagree is not the same as to hate. The Bible is clear. We live with beauty and brokenness simultaneously. We must tell a better story. We must learn counter-catechesis and subversive fulfillment. Jesus is the centre and the answer. And suffering and denial essential to following Christ. So, now we come to the five tensions. Tension number one. As a resident alien, we're in Babylon, but we're not trying to imbibe everything that Babylon has to tell us if you're in the Daniel series with us. How do we engage with Babylon without compromise, without retreat, but with service? Well, the first one is how and when to speak. So hard to know. And five of you said that. How? How do we do this? When do I do it from the front? When do I do it in public? When do I do it one-to-one? When do I do it with a friend? Very hard. I know we, we can't never speak and we can't always speak. We can't just say things in a kind of public context, but we can't only say things in a public context. It's really tricky. It's a tension we live with. Combining truth and grace, compassion and integrity together can feel impossible. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But he never condoned sin. Jesus was full of moral integrity, but never to the extent where he became unapproachable. How do we do that? So hard. 
living freely and fully in Jesus. How do we call each other to live for Jesus fully? When our thinking is skewed by culture and not aligned with the Bible. When our practice is out of line with God's plan and design. When does church discipline happen? When do we have to say to someone, sorry, you can't belong to our church now because you keep practicing this? And it goes against what the Bible says. It's very tricky to know these answers, how to help people live fully and freely in Jesus. How to incorporate complex complexity. What happens if a gay married couple started coming to CCC to check out Jesus? How would you react? They held hands, walking in, gave each other a kiss. What would you do? What happens if a transgender teenager came in saying, I'm currently moving from being a boy to a girl and I want to think about Jesus? What would you do? What happens if a gay couple came who were married and they had children? And they said, we've come to study the Bible. What would you do? I know Jesus knows how to handle it. I don't know if we do. It's hard. A resident exile is really hard. I know how to avoid it by just assimilating. I know how to avoid that tension by uh, compromising, uh, but, but by retreating. But how to be a resident now is very hard in that complexity. And how to stay, final one, sp- uh, spiritually, uh, uh, remain spiritually resilient, yet with a soft missionary heart. Very tricky, and we're going to need help. So, ten uncontestable truths, I think. Five very challenging tensions. Over into your groups. What is helpful? What do you agree, disagree with? What questions are you left with?